like challenges. And I said this a long time ago, if I'm going to get in the food business, I need a lot more challenge. And I wanted to learn all aspects of food service, right? So Stanford kicked off into a catering company, which became five catering companies. I purchased some companies that were very good companies, but unfortunately had challenges in operations. I was able to take those companies and take those customers and build those companies back up. So I did that. And then I felt like I had done everything that I could do as far as reaching the ceiling. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin, and over the last 20 years, I've brought more than 500 companies to market with my agency, LMGPR. So I know a thing or two about a great story. On this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes with visionaries from an array of industries and philosophies who are shaping our world and our future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our story begins on the majestic Mount Hamilton, perched high above Santa Clara County, looking out over Silicon Valley, a region once known for its rich, abundant agriculture. Yes, before it became the center of tech and startups, this was the Valley of Heart's Delight. It's also my hometown. Long before the arrival of futuristic tech campuses, sprawling mansions, and bustling freeways, the sweeping panorama of ranches and orchards stretched as far as the eye could see. The Valley of Heart's Delight was renowned for its apricots, walnuts, and fruits of all kinds. Salinas Valley to the south produced lettuce and strawberries. Eastward lay the Central Valley, the nation's breadbasket. Today, the engine of California's booming $54 billion agricultural industry. This is a tale about how a love of farming, food, and the entrepreneurial spirit connected in Silicon Valley. It's the story of Maurice Caruba, a Sicilian-born restaurateur with an insatiable appetite for exquisite food, deep family traditions, beautiful views, fertile land, and sustainable practices. Maurice runs the Grandview in San Jose, La Frey, Osteria, Toscana, Palo Alto, Cafe Riace, and San Benito House. He also founded and runs Chess Catering, a business he helped grow from 250k to 5 million in revenue over just three years. Through his ventures, Maurice employs over 150 people in Silicon Valley and the peninsula. Maurice has been called the Warren Buffett of restaurateurs, with his knack for finding classic value restaurants with great bones, and then transforming them into go-to dining experiences. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Sicily and find out where it all began for Maurice. So let's talk about the early days. You're born and raised in Sicily. Yep. Born in Sicily and moved here in 1989, October 16th. So we all know what happened in 1989 on the 17th. We had a little bit of an earthquake here. So <laughs> that was our welcome to California. Back home in Sicily, I come from a family of farmers and restaurant tours. So I was raised, raised in that environment my whole life, right outside of Syracuse. So our little town was known, Pacino, was known for agriculture. Mainly their cherry tomatoes are world famous. And it's also a fishing village. So that's where I grew up, moved to Silicon Valley with my father, who was pursuing an opportunity here. 
and landed in Palo Alto. We opened our first restaurant there called Cafe Riachi, which is, was, we opened in 1997 and is still there serving Sicilian food. And, you know, over the years, we opened up several other restaurants, were involved in catering companies, event planning. Then we ended up on Mount Hamilton, beautiful Mount Hamilton, Heart's Delight, you know, this valley, this beautiful valley that we live in. And we took over the Mount Hamilton Grandview Restaurant, which had been operating since the late 1800s. So let's go back to Sicily. Let's talk about some of the great memories that you had growing up in Sicily. What really made it so special? And what is your fondest memory of that region? You know, growing up in in Sicily, I just remember harvesting grapes at my grandfather's vineyard, picking vegetables at my uncle's farm, making bread and pizzas and homemade sausage, everything coming out of this little, small wood-burning oven. And just the simplicity of not just life, but the flavors of the food. And in my little town, Pequino, you could literally go two kilometers, a mile, and you're on the beach. And just having the the Mediterranean there and the Ionian at our disposal, just things that, you know, I never took for granted and never forgot. And we we do have a home still back home and back in Sicily and family. So we try to go back there as much. But you can never get over the smells. You never forget the smells of the food and the city and all the energy. It's amazing. Is there a particular smell that resonates with you? You know, everything's a farmer's market there, right? So when you get out and you walk out of my home, you go down the street and there's beautiful stone fruit. There's the smells coming from, they call the panificio, which is the bakery where all the bread's coming out. Because of course, at one o'clock, everything closes. So there's a lot of smells going on around, you know, in the morning, people are getting ready, you know, making food at the markets for people to conveniently pick up and take home to have with their families, right? The butcher shops, I mean, the cured meats. When you walk by all the stores, you can smell all the wonderful food and love going into all of their products. Well, that's one of the most amazing things about that region and the culture is the family. So let's talk a little bit about your family values, your parents and your grandparents. You mentioned working side by side. How important was that to the shaping and molding of how you are running your business as well as the values with your family? You know, ever since I was a little little boy, I've been around very strong, hardworking men and women in my family. And I've learned a lot from my grandmother whether it was cooking, (laughs) my grandfather, hard work on the farm, my father. So I'm really very, very fortunate to have had all these mentors in my life to to help get my brother and I, my brother's my business partner, get us to where we're at and just help us build a really strong foundation as kids. They really instilled hard work and and good ethics and honesty in, in us. And, you know, that really helped us a lot. Giuseppe is your business partner. Yes. Your father kind of brought you into this in, into this entrepreneurship. So let's talk a little bit about your father specifically. You come to California and into Palo Alto specifically, a very important place in the shadow of the tech industry. What were your first impressions? You know, I was a little kid. I had uncles here. They all lived in the Sunnyvale and Morgan Hill area and had their little orchards, their gardens. So it kind of felt like, from that aspect that I was still home, you know, they're still making, you know, Sunday dinners and fresh baked bread and vegetable gardens. I still felt that deep connection. On the tech side, I think I was a little too young to really understand until, you know, a little bit later on. 
in life, that the city that we landed in, Palo Alto, would really have such an impact on the industry as a whole. I mean, not just the technology, talking computers here, but as you know, they did. there's a lot of good things going on and movements in regards to technology for farming. So yeah, very fortunate to have landed in Palo Alto. My dad got a contract to come here to really work on a very challenging building that they could not find the right person to help with this project because it was very complicated. And he came in and did a great job and ended up staying here and working with the company. Was that a restaurant as well? No, it was a uh, building for uh, an attorney group. And what they were doing, they were doing a lot of stone work, a lot of granite work. And they had all these granite columns. And at the time, I think they'd gone through about 10 or 12 companies to try and finish this work. And no one could figure out how to bend stone, how to machine it. And my father, who was an artist with masonry and stonework, had come off of a job in Edmonton where he helped all the stonework at the Edmonton Mall, which was one of the largest malls in the world. So they seeked him out, found him all the way in Sicily, flew him out. He looked at the job. He says, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> They're like, well, 12 other people have told you you could do it. Are you sure you could do it? He's like, yeah, I'll have it done in six months. And he delivered the project and then they hired him to, to stay on and we moved over. So how did that lead from that to this entrepreneurship in the restaurant business? Because your father brought you into the business. Yeah, that's a good question. So my father built a a building, another building for this particular group. And at the bottom of the building, there's this beautiful piazza. So it was a European-inspired building. It's on Sheridan Avenue. It's parallel down to the old downtown California Avenue. And on this bottom of this piazza, was a space. And my father said, look, how about we put a little coffee shop here? Would you mind? You know, I'd love to do that. I want to do something with my kids. He knew I loved food as, at a very young age. And I said, dad, I'd love the opportunity. So he built an amazing piazza. You sit under these olive trees, there's fountains, there's statues. And that place is called Cafe Riachi. And that's what started our food endeavors in the Bay Area. And that place is still there. And it serves traditional Sicilian food. I started cooking there. I learned. That's where I started learning the business. And that's where I really got the bug. And that's when I knew that I would be doing this for the rest of my life. How old were you? I started in the business at 13. I started at Cafe Riachi. I was 19. But I started working at 13. Wow. So your career really started with the belief system your father had. It's like, I do build something for my for my kids. And But you yeah. were hands-on. Was your mother involved in the business as well? Oh, absolutely. It was all her, her recipes and my grandmother's recipes. So it was great to have that time and to get the transfer of the knowledge was very meaningful. Again, our family, when you asked about my family in Sicily and what I remember the most, and I think I left the most important thing out, and that's the tradition. So, you know, learning these dishes and just learning the flavors and how to put things together was very, very important. And that helped really put a good base in line for me as a chef. Well, let's talk about some of those dishes. What are the dishes that when you come together that just define family? I mean, conversations over food and food in general bring people together. You're making memories and laughter and sharing moments, right? So what about your family? What are those those dishes? You know, we love to eat. There's so many different dishes. I guess it depends on the time of year. So spring and summer, we, we do serve a lot of fish. 
at the table, a lot of whole fish. We love tuna, swordfish, things out of our region are really nice. My kids love my mother's chicken cutlets. <laughs> her cutlets are, cutlets are amazing. Uh, of course, lasagna that she makes, her famous cannelloni, the pasta sheets that are filled with a sautéed spinach, baby spinach and nutmeg and fresh New York whipped ricotta. Those are amazing. Those always bring a lot of happiness to the table, <laughs> I would say. So it's just so many dishes. My mom's orange and fennel salad, very traditional with Sicilian roots, you know, the citrus and the fennel. So many great dishes. And obviously, you know, I would say some of my favorite personal ones in the wintertime, fall and winter is her osobuco, her veal shanks, the lamb shanks she does, braised rabbit. We have a lot of plays on on braised dishes back home. And back in the day, they were very simple to put together and you didn't need a lot of ingredients. So you just needed an oven, basically, right? And and, and the raw products to make a, a nice dish. And now your children, you have three children? I have three. Yes, I got three. <laughs> yeah, three children in the kitchen now. Three generations or four generations in the kitchen. Yeah, they love uh, they love being part of the kitchen. My daughter, uh, I would say probably the most. Ever since she was probably two or three years old, she followed me around everywhere. She's a much ba- better baker than I am. She's a great baker. She's always has her sleeves rolled up and willing to jump in and help. And she's been learning from my mother. You know, I think it's in our blood. Before we were in the restaurant business, we entertained folks, lots of entertaining at our house, lots of feeding people. We just never gave anybody a bill. <laughs> so, you know, uh, as far as our family goes, and then on, on the back end, aunts, uncles, they had restaurants back home and bars and bars back home are a little different than the term here, you know, but we just grew up in this our whole lives, whether it was food or, or farming, it's just always been around. So let's dig in a little more in Cafe Rache. How did that spawn kind of the next series of things? Well, Cafe Riachi first by itself spawned into a full-fledged restaurant. It was originally going to be, you know, some panini, an espresso bar, very simple, maybe a salad here, maybe a plate of pasta. We had four or five tables out there. And within two years of people coming in there and trying the food, it just it turned into a full-fledged restaurant with 250 seats. That was an hour to a two hour wait to get in. <laughs> no reservations. You just first come, first serve. And that really took off. We all worked there as a family. My father would help out, you know, after work. My mother, my brother, later on, my wife to be, you know, when we got engaged, she, she helped and my brother's wife. So yeah, we got a lot of recognition from Stanford. People loved coming over there for their parties, events. And then one day they invited us to bid on a place at Stanford. It was in the engineering building. So we showed up and, and placed a bid on a on a cafe to, to be an operator for one of their cafes or food service. They wanted something a little elevated and not cafeteria food. So we ended up getting that bid. There was 12 other companies that showed up. We were awarded the contract. And Donna, from there, we ended up with 13 other locations throughout Stanford, medical side and academic side and off campus. And we had a relationship for about 15 years. So we were serving about, I don't know, 15,000 people a day. That's a lot of fish and people. (laughs) So a lot of food. Yeah, I met you in that era and Cafe Rache in the catering era. And then you went into this whole new 
you know, direction, which is you've been called the Warren Buffett of restaurants. You know, he takes businesses with really good bones and makes them even better, right? And you've done the same, but on the restaurant side of things. So after Cafe Riace, just walk us through the other places that you took and amplified them to the Maurizio level of experience. Sure. No, absolutely. You know, I like challenges, right? And I said this a long time ago, if I'm going to get in the food business, I don't want to be, and there's nothing wrong with an operator who sticks to his guns and works in one restaurant or two restaurants and one type of cuisine, and that's what they do. I need a lot more challenge, and I wanted to learn all aspects of food service, right? So I told you about Stanford. Stanford helped spawn from there. It kicked off into a catering company, which became you know, five catering companies. I, I purchased some companies that were very good companies, but unfortunately had challenges in operations. And I was able to take those companies and take those customers and build those companies back up. From there, I learned concessions also. I did a lot of concessions for athletics, right? That's another operation that's completely different from restaurants and catering. So I did that. And then I felt like I had done everything that I could do as far as reaching the ceiling in those fields, in those areas. So I decided to really focus on building our restaurant group. So I went and I found San Benito House. And San Benito House is a historic property. It's been around since 1905. You've been there before, I believe, right? Yeah, it's in the beautiful Half Moon Bay. Another agriculture built. Yeah, absolutely. So we found that property. It's the oldest saloon on the coast and had great bones. Owners were retiring. The son was running it, but you know he wasn't super interested in doing that. He was doing it more as a favor. We had this opportunity. We walked in and and turned that business around and, and kept it open for the locals. And that's been that's been great. From there, we purchased the Grandview, and that's been around since 1884. That business, same thing. The owners were in their late 80s. God bless her, Lucy. And, you know, she was ready to retire, and the building needed some work, and the business needed work. And we walked in and saw the potential, and we're probably seeing about 1,500 people a week come all the way up that mountain. It's been it's been a lot of work, but it's been so rewarding to, and an honor to have people drive up there and just to come see us and have that experience. Marisa's signature project is the Grandview Restaurant on Mount Hamilton. The mountain is famous for the Lick Observatory established in the 1880s by the California businessman James Lick. The mountain was also settled by pioneers who tapped the fresh spring to water their horses. There's a rich history here, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the ghost. So there's a theme with your restaurant. So you have some of your properties have like a permanent guest. Can you tell me a little bit about your permanent dinner guests? You know, I have a couple of uh, permanent guests. So these, these buildings, of course, have a lot of history. They've been around since the 1800s. So there is some activity. As a matter of fact, at the Grandview this weekend, I got a video from my managing partner, Ilya. And he says, check this out. And I'm looking at the video. And it's, you know, when you walk in, you got the grand piano, baby, grand, baby grand piano. And there's Frank, who is, God bless him, he passed away, our piano man, for many years over there. We put some flowers on the piano and we put a lamp and his lamp picked up and just decided to take off from the piano. They didn't want to be in the piano anymore. So it just flew. 
we've had chairs move. We've had all kinds of things. So we do have some guests up at the Grandview. There is a story that's been going around for many, many years that there's a headless woman that looks out the patio. I haven't seen her yet. Thank God. Don't plan on it. But I have experienced some cool things. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little intrigued because I have not seen that. But And you have all this rich history, but you've made it a very contemporary and fun place to dine. So let's talk a little bit about the mystique of the what you've done with the Grand View, and then across the street, which is really, really want to dig into, is the Grandview Farms, which is basically what's feeding everyone that comes into that restaurant. It's locally sourced, it's fresh, it's regional, and it checks all my boxes when it comes to organic sustainability and locally sourced. So take us on the journey of what was it like to take over Lucille's role for many years and then bringing it into the, you know, more contemporary place that you want to go have dinner? You know, I, that's a good question. I, when we, when we purchased the property, we knew it was going to be a huge undertaking. There was a lot of work that needed to be done structurally, aesthetically. We wanted a vibe in there that kind of, we kind of went for an old Hollywood glam vibe in there. You know, back in the day when people used to dress up to go out, and it had that feel when you walked in the doors. So we, we spent some time, obviously, on on the aesthetics, focusing on how to have more seats outside on the view. So we built a couple patios. And then while we were doing all this work, probably within the first year, the property across the street came up for sale. And it was a 60-acre parcel that was a, you know, 120-year cattle ranch and my brother said hey you know we should really check that out we need overflow parking we've discussed doing a little bit of our own farming at the time it was going to be much smaller scale so we had our hands full with what we were doing with the projects at hand and you know I kind of took a stab at it and it looked like the owner that was there was local he was super happy that we had taken on this Grandview project it meant it was very near and dear to him and it was kind of a hobby ranch for him. So long story short, he wanted us to have the property. We told him our vision. He was super excited about it. He was retired and moving out of state. And we made a deal happen. So we ended up at, at Grandview Farms. And, you know, you've been there. Grandview Farms is a magical place. We instilled all the things that we had learned back in Sicily, which was Grow everything as natural as you can. No pesticides, right? Source the best vegetable seeds. Source everything you do. Always put in the top quality, whether it's your workmanship, your seeds, even your water. And we started this farm. And the farm has been going great. We've put in an orchard. We have raised beds. We do in-ground farming, all natural practices. We're growing seasonal vegetables for our chef. And the Grandview Farms not only takes care of the Grandview restaurant as far as providing the freshest ingredients right next door. It also gets the chance to move some of those products to our other restaurants like La Foray, Cafe Riachi, Osteria, which we didn't talk about, you know, all those other restaurants in our group. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like celebrity chef Tyler Florence, another guest on our show steeped in cooking tradition. 
with an eye on sustainability as well. 40% of all food that ends up at a grocery store ends up in the dumpster. And then 30% of food that comes home ends up in the garbage can. So there's an enormous amount of food waste that happens on small micro levels on a daily basis just because it's not pretty. It takes 26 gallons of water to grow one head of romaine lettuce. So like thinking through that sad head of lettuce in your crisper, wh why would you let that rot? You got to use it. You got to use that stuff up. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So the Osteria is a restaurant mine your brother actually worked at when he was younger. Yeah. And you acquired it, right? That's Which a good is story. quite amazing. Yeah, so Osteria is the landmark in Palo Alto. It's the second oldest restaurant. It's downtown. It's at the bottom of the old, it's a beautiful building, the old Stanford Park Hotel, or Cardinal Hotel, excuse me. And it's been there. The Piccinini family opened it up about 40 plus years ago. They ran it as a Tuscan style restaurant. And my brother got his first restaurant job there. He actually ended up meeting his future wife there and was very good friends with the owners. And when they were ready to retire, and again, it was one of those situations kind of like the San Benito House, which is a landmark downtown. The owners came to us and said, hey, we'd really would love to offer this to you first because we know you can carry the tradition. And, and you guys, you know, you want to make it better, make it better. And we went in there and that place was doing great. And we just... Like you said, we know, we know we made some changes and it's been great. You know, we've been super happy to be there. It, it's very meaningful to my brother for sure. And, and I, I, we celebrated many events at, at Osteria growing up. It was a go-to place. So we're very fortunate to be part of that. And then we have La Forêt and it's French. It's not Italian. But right. again, one of these opportunities to take, you know, the baton from a very established entrepreneur. And, and what did you do to transform that restaurant? You know, that's a good question because that restaurant was very different from some of the others that we took over and, and added to our group. So La Foray, it was built in 1848 and, it, and was the first two-story adobe hotel built in the state of California. So the, that whole area has so much history. John Davuti, the owner, Wonderful man, also owned the Papillon here in, in, in the Bay Area, other French restaurant. He was retiring, and I heard the story of the place and how it started, how long it's been around. And I was having dinner with my wife and my friend Greg, and I told Greg, I said, I'm going to buy this place because it was for sale. And I said, I cannot believe I haven't been there. And he thought maybe I had too much wine, and my wife was kicking Greg under the table. Hey, you don't need any more projects. <laughs> that we're restaurants. <laughs> what did I do the next day? I called the broker, and they told me it had been sold. And I said, "Oh, well, that sucks." You know, I guess I missed out. And Greg calls me a week later, and he says, "Hey, did you talk to John?" I said, "No, I mean, I, I talked to the broker. He said it was sold." He said, "No, it fell out of contract." Let me give you John's number. So I called John directly, and. Him and I hit it off and met, and I went into the place, and I just saw the potential there. John was 
he actually vetted us. He went to the Grandview, went to a couple of the restaurants. It, that place, he spent 40 hard years working there, and that was his baby. So he wanted to make sure he was, it was going in the right hands. And, you know, we made a deal, and it's been it's been great. It, it's We retained the, the same chefs there. We retained Sammy. He's been there 39 years as general manager. It's been great. Talk about restaurants that, that are filled with special occasion. Every Everybody that goes there, it's like a... It's a tradition here in Almaden, San Jose. Yeah, so you're feeding you know, from farm to table from the Grandview Farms. And this is where I really want to dig in. The Grandview Farms is for supplying local, sustainable, fresh, regional food to these two restaurants. But it's really not just the food. It's a whole philosophy behind that that you've created that is you know, on a micro footprint, you know, 60 acre farm is, you know, decent size to you know, support two, two restaurants, but it also, it's very labor intensive. So how do you do all this? Do you have a farm crew that's working with you? And, and how do you find farm labor and talent when we have a shortage in farm labor? Like, how do you find yeah. the talent? So, I mean, talent is difficult to find right now in any field when you talk about it's a very good question because when you talk about farming which is just something that is is so rare nowadays here in the San Jose area to meet a <laughs> farmer to meet a farmer to meet a farmer and and have anybody that's actually farming right it has its challenges we have been very fortunate with our farm crew so we do have housing on the property and we have three wonderful team members that that work with us directly uh, Biagio is our farmer. He's from Italy and grew up working in farms and agriculture. He's our lead farmer. Him and I work very closely together as I have a fair amount of knowledge in regards to crops up here and our soil and water and what does well, what doesn't do well. We've had a lot of trial and error since 2015 on up here on the mountain and different challenges as well, given the elevation and all that. Well, we have a drought. California has a yeah. drought. So how do you deal with the drought? What has been your work around? So, I mean, all of our irrigation is energy efficient, water efficient. We do use certain methods of dry farming on certain crops, for example, tomatoes and zucchini, things like that. We did recently put in a new well. We, we had a well dug. And so that's helped us out. And we had to do that because, of course, you know, we did the, we did the vineyard project right? So we needed to find out how to get more water to do that. And that was the only way to do it. So what are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint? That's a big topic in farming and agriculture is that the electrification and just being greener. What are you doing to reduce your footprint on the farm to make that food taste even better? Well, again, it's all natural practices. We don't use any pesticides. We dry farm when we can. The property is all on solar. We compost our scraps from our restaurants, make our own compost. We use, you know, we have chickens. We do, we, we, I, I think you've seen the chicken coop we have up there too, right? So we make compost teas with some of the chicken coop cleanings. We do all kinds of different things to stay green, right? Whether it's compost teas, whether it's saving water, whether it's our green solar footprint and not use of any no use of any chemicals it's really what what we practice up here do you plant a fish in the garden like Italians do we have fish oils we do save all the renderings from all the fish scales from the restaurants 
and make teas and, you know, compost teas and things like that and sprays, natural sprays. So let's talk about the latest venture from the farm, which is your winemaking. So nobody sits down at an Italian dinner without some wine. So what inspired you to now add another dimension? As you said, you like challenges. Had you made wine before? Were there winemakers in your family? Yes, my grandfather, my uncles, my dad, they all made wine. I wouldn't say some of the best wine. (laughs) Some of my grandfather's wine was really tough. But, you know, I was 11 years old. It's probably supposed to taste a little rough when you're 11. We grew up with wine at the table. But so so this this project that we we started here on Mount Hamilton, we're very, very proud of. We are bringing single estate vineyard Cabernet up on the mountain. We have some Nero Davola, which is an amazing, amazing varietal from Sicily. And we have Sangiovese which is made, you know, used to make Chianti, it's used to make Sangiovese, it's used to, to blend and make super Tuscan wines. So we have basically put in this vineyard. We have Sangiovese, we have Cabernet, we have Nero Davola. Our goal is to produce a really, really high-end, beautiful single vineyard Cabernet, as well as a super Tuscan, with our secret ingredient being our Nero Davola, mixed with the Sangiovese and the Cab. And to also be able to have events within the vineyard. So when you go into the vineyard, you climb up the hill, we've carved a part of that mountain off and there's a facility basically where you can have an outdoor private dinner and you're in the vineyard with the view of the valley. Similar to the Grand View, but about 150 feet higher. No obstructions. It's it's awesome. I can't wait to share that with you. And so you have the wine, you have the beef, you have the produce, but how do you get the next generation to really understand that when you come into the Grandview and you come in to foster this experience to maybe take the same best practice to their home, plant a garden at home, plant a garden with your kids. A lot of schools have gardens, little micro farms, right? But how do you get the next generation to respect the earth and become micro farmers and custodians of the land? Because that's really what you have become, right? You're a custodian of the land. You're giving it's this continuous ecosystem. So how do you nurture that? You know, it starts when you when you first get into the Grandview and you come in and if, you know, if kids come with their parents or whether they do not, as I think it's not, I know how important it is to get the kids involved, but I think it's everybody's, everybody should be involved, right? So we give a message as soon as you do sit down, we let you know a little bit about the restaurant and give you an introduction and educate them as to where their food's coming from and what we do. As far as getting the kids more involved, we are actively starting conversations with local schools, including my kids' schools, to figure out how we can get the kids up there at least once a year in groups and do some farm activities together and make sure that they walk away, even with something that they can take home to, you know, a plant to take home to uh, to take care of and come up for a harvest day, help with harvest and give them a full eight hour, you know, experience of the farm. And I guarantee you, when we start doing this, it's going to stick with a lot of these kids because I haven't seen one kid that comes up to the farm and doesn't love it up there. They love, first of all, the air, the animals, you know, the chickens, the, we have goats, we have horses, cattle. They love the open space. And when you give them a chore, like, hey, we're going to pick eggs, we're going to go gather the eggs and we're going to wash the eggs. And they all of a sudden start paying attention. You know, they're interested. 
So what's next, Maurice? You, know, you have all these projects. I have no idea when you sleep. No idea when you <laughs> sleep. The Valley of Heart's Delight is alive and well because of your being a custodian of the land and the care that you put in. So what's next? I think it's just to keep educating people, you know, on how important it is. I think a lot of folks, they kind of thought if you grow your own food, you're poor. I think they might have a different outlook on it, especially going through COVID, right? We went through COVID. I think it was kind of cool growing your own food. (laughs) For just a little bit of fun, just close this with a, what would be like an Italian blessing that you would have before you sit down and say equivalent to grace at the table? Well, you know, what we say is we, you know, we pray for, you know, everybody's health and well-being. And we thank our Lord for our food and our offerings. And we just give thanks. We just give thanks to the Lord. And we're, we're Catholics, so we, we do say grace at the table. And it's a, it's a good time to, for everybody to put their head down and, and just give thanks, you know, for all the, all the things that we are a grace with. On the show, we love food and we love foodies. We've covered agriculture. We've covered sustainability. We've covered wine. We talked to Carla Mondavi. We've had Tyler Florence. We've had David Boca. They not only have food in common, but they've dedicated their life and their passion to feeding people like us. We're proud to give Maurice a seat at the table, and we can't wait to get back to his. Maybe even see one of those ghosts. For more about Maurice and his many ventures, check out the show notes. Bon appetito! Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>